I'm Mariangela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ plus and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community, where we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. The goal of this space is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated or alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Today, my guest is creative, community organizer, abolitionist, educator, attorney, and many people in the community right now refer to them as the people's mayor, Nikita Oliver, who uses she, her pronouns. She is a published writer, a performer who's been featured with the likes of Cornel West, Chuck D, Stephen Colbert. In 2017, Nikita was the first political candidate of the Seattle People's Party, running for mayor of Seattle and narrowly missed the general election by roughly a thousand votes coming in third out of 21 candidates. Nikita speaks and performs at events across the country related to equity, law and justice, education, and arts activism. However, as of late, she can be seen often on the front lines of the powerful Seattle activist movement fighting towards decriminalizing, defunding, and abolition of our racist, sexist, and classist institutions who are systemically killing our BIPOC and QTPOC community. Welcome. Thanks for making the time. I know you're super busy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I want to do a check-in first like I do with everybody because every day is different. How are you doing today now in this space? Yeah, uh, I'm ready for a day off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a little tired. Um, it is definitely challenging running a nonprofit that you know partners with young people that are liberating themselves from the criminal punishment system. Well, simultaneously doing a lot of uh, movement work and supporting a lot of other people. So definitely could use a day off. Yeah, I kind of put it out to the community this week that I was interviewing you and asked if anybody had any questions. And the majority of people's questions to you were, how is she taking care of herself? And does she have a way for self-care right now? Because we see her everywhere and we're so worried that she doesn't have an outlet. Yeah, I mean, self-care is an interesting thing. Um, I, I do get asked that question a lot. And it's definitely been a challenge during this last couple months. Um, you know, as, as challenging as COVID has been and as probably um, hard as quarantine was for a lot of people, it was very jarring to go from being at home a lot excluding when we were doing deliveries to young people and families. And then all of a sudden uh, being in the streets and being at the office and, you know, city hall organizing and uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been jarring. Yeah. Self-care is hard. I'm not really sure how other people answer that question. Uh, I just try to be transparent and say, 
you know, I get a run in five days a week and the rest of the time I work, <laughs> I try to, I try to get seven, six hours sleep, but. Well, um, I think that the second most popular question was people want to know if you're going to run again. And I, and I call you the people's mayor because I don't know if you remember, I came up to you at Cinerama that day, right after your election. And, you know, our daughter is 23 now, but she was 18 and she came to us and said, I want the first person that I vote for to be Nikita Oliver. And I was like, yes, we were so excited and took her and she voted for the first time. But now everybody's like, are you going to run again? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have an answer for it. Um, you know, my primary focus right now is work with the movement and focusing on keeping creative justice sustained and growing its infrastructure to be able to support the art and healing work of more young people. Right. Um, you know, the election isn't wouldn't be until 2021. And there's a lot of work to be done right now. Uh, you know, I think we've we've been meeting with council, we've been organizing actions, we've been supporting other coalitions actions. We're working with King County Equity now. And there's a lot, I think we will win a lot of things in the next year. And so uh, if I'm transparent, I really am not even thinking much about that because uh, the present moment has so many important details and so much work that needs to be done right in order for us to be able to make it into the next phases of, um, you know, hopefully abolishing the police. Um, but before we can fully get there, we really have to build up the infrastructure and the capacity of community-based organizations to be doing this public health and public safety work. So, you know, my primary focus is is on where we're at in the movement right now. And I know that's a question a lot of people have, but if we don't, if we don't get this moment right, if we don't get it fine-tuned, then it will make the next phases of of this of this work even more challenging. And we don't know if we'll get another chance like this. It's it's there's such a convergence of movements and issues and so much opportunity to make significant leaps forward on work that people have been doing for a hundred years, um, that it's hard, it's hard to think about running for mayor when there's probably like hundreds of tasks that need to get done right now. I, I totally get that. And I think that there's so many of us in the community that, you know, 10 years ago, especially because we know each other from the music scene, 10 years ago, there were so many things happening, even 15 years ago in the scene that kind of we're before their time, we're ready for this time right now. And it was, I kind of look back to a lot of music groups and poets and I'm like, why can't we just fast forward that a little bit because that we, were, we need all this now. But um, like going to the abolishment of the police, I watched that press conference with Durkin and Best and I was just flabbergasted at her the audacity of saying that there's no planning in place and there's no nothing. And I just, I wonder if we're being listened to, you know, I was one of the people that supported best when, when Durkin was trying to bring people from out of town. And I was like, she's from here. She's black. Like, let's get her on this kind of on board with us. And now I'm just kind of looking going, what's going on? Yeah. You know, I think we're really ex experiencing the effects of classism within BIPOC communities, what happens when a couple of people are allowed proximity to wealth and power, um, what gatekeeping looks like. 
Uh, we're experiencing the limitations of identity politics. I mean, I think it's very important to center the most impacted. It's important to use our, our intersectional analysis as we develop solutions. And at the same time, recognizing that just because someone is your skin folk doesn't mean they're your kin folk. And, um, you know, that's both a painful realization and it is, um, it's, it's, it's not a new realization, you know, in the 60s our elders faced similar things with um, black folks who maybe who had attained a, a little bit of power, you know, not a lot, but a little and uh, and not even real power, like maybe proximity to it. And what happens uh, when people become afraid of losing that little bit or even get a little bit of Stockholm syndrome um, or be function protectionist of the folks that are really pulling the strings, you know, I actually feel bad for for Carmen Best in the sense that um, her boss is Jenny Durkin, and if she were to really side with the Black Lives Matter movement, she would risk her job and probably her safety because I can only imagine the way that um, other officers maybe would react. And so she is in a challenging position. That said, I think the people who supported her for that role believed that she would do the right thing if this moment came and believed that um, she had the resilience and um, the strength to hold the line. And I think there are a lot of people who supported her for that, for to become chief, who um, feel disappointed, you know, that, that's, that this moment is here right now. There's a significant movement for defunding the police and really investing in public safety strategies we know work for everyone. And yet um, she's she's defending the status quo. She's defending um, you know, racist systems. And I think that that is also very painful for black people um, you know, to, to have to deal with in a very public way. It's not like it's not like it uh, the the struggle is secret in terms of the um, I don't want to call it end fighting, but obviously the difference of what we think is the right thing to do. And it's a very visible, very public struggle. Um, and that comes with its own form of trauma. So at the end of the day, all of this is like the construction of white supremacy, how white supremacy has set up its way of functioning to divide and conquer, to pit people against each other, to exploit. I mean, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm really being compassionate, uh, you know, Carmen gets made the black face of a white supremacist institution, and that in and of itself is also exploitative. So um, it really is a challenging situation, while at the same time, um, there are so many people that are about defund the police right now, from seven city council members to thousands upon thousands of people in the streets in Seattle alone, millions, you know, across the nation. It, it really is a dynamic moment. And even in the tiredness and even in the trauma, because it is traumatic, there, I have a, a real hope that in 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, wow, we really, we really won. It feels like we're finally making progress. It feels like there's this rumble. And while it's scary and there's still really shitty things happening, I feel like for the first time ever, because we've all been forced to sit in this pause right now, that especially white people that were ignorant to it are now being forced to see it because they can't ignore it because 
it can't use busy or whatever work or multitasking as a reason to not see what's in front of their faces. But yeah, I think there's also a real convergence though. I mean, like there are there are white folks that are entering probably a period of poverty they never expected to enter. And the US as as a government and even Seattle and King County in a lot of ways have failed to protect people and their livelihoods. And when I think about what made um, the night, the end of the 1960s so effective, it was poor white folks, you know, starting to understand that racialized capitalism isn't just about exploiting black people and black labor, stealing native land and genocide. It also is about keeping some white people poor. And so that convergence of people understanding like, what is the real oppressive structure really brought a lot of people into the movement in, in the end of the 1960s and the early 1970s. And so I think we're seeing a similar thing now. And, and young people have such a dynamic analysis, like they understand intersectionality. They understand the importance of centering the most impacted. They know that those who have proximity to struggle need to have proximity to power to be doing the solution building. And as a result, um, I think, the, the youth are really, you know, on the front line leading this work in a really important way, which is always true, but social media makes that so much more visible as they're being their own story keepers and their own historians. Um, you know, at that level, it's actually very beautiful to watch um, that evolution. It's, it's magical because we think back, I mean, I think you're about 10 years younger than me. And I think the X gen and even the, you know, looking at these millennials now who we gave shit to and made fun of in the late 2018, 2019. Now they're throwing tear gas bombs back to the cops. And we're just like the, the utter courage and just the, the amount of knowledge and information they have at their fingertips is so much more than we had. You know, we had WTO riots and Nirvana, like we didn't have anything else back then. And I'm just so impressed watching them now. It's, it gives me so much hope seeing how organized they have become so fast. I mean, and it can't be ignored though, that like the WTO riots, um, Occupy, uh, Daybreak Star Occupation, El Centro de La Raza, um, the African American Heritage Museum, Coleman School, Occupation at Horseman, all of these things have really laid a foundation in our region for what makes, um, I think, what's making the current moment so dynamic. Uh, Seattle has a very powerful history of uh, rebellion and uprising. Uh, King, the region does, you know, and so while the youth are certainly putting their own spin on it, like as a young person at 34, like I also think it's really important, very significant for me to acknowledge that there are like historical movements that have come before and some of them in my lifetime that have uh, formed part of the way that I think about engaging in direct action and how that relates to legislative change and how does that relate to cultural shifts and the value of art, you know, um, the history in our region is actually very powerful. And I think a lot of young folks have been able to gain knowledge and not make the same mistakes that have happened before. And as a result, that's why we're seeing such a dynamic movement right now. I love that. Um, I wanna shift to what's happening in Portland. You know, I've been reading over the last few days and, and having some firsthand experience from friends that, you know, there's a different kind of, of 
uh, I don't want to say it's flat. It, it, it's kind of the police, but we're not sure. Um, people being put in jail, people being arrested, but it's not clear where they're going. Um, do you have any more information on that? Because I feel like it's what's it's scaring people here that we're kind of next if 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 we you know keep protesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be willing to acknowledge that COINTELPRO in the '60s was very real, and as much as as activists. Um, and organizers, technology advancements have allowed us to evolve how we protest and how we push for social change. Um, it has also allowed the military industrial complex, which includes police um, and counterinsurgents, to transform the way that, that they do what they do as well. And so I think anything that happens in Portland or Oakland or Seattle, we should all assume is a possibility in the other cities. Uh, you know, we have a lot of movement of activists between those regions. We, you know, I, I think what's powerful about those three cities on the West Coast is there is a knowledge sharing and building and uh, we have built considerable relationships. You know, at one point in time when we would do lockdowns, um, there were only two trained, quote unquote, police groups that could come remove the lockdowns, one of which was in Portland. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's probably best to assume that if there are certain strange things happening there, there's always the possibility that they will happen here and we should be paying attention. You know, folks should be really getting to know what security culture is, understanding the dynamics of grand juries. Um being thoughtful about who they're around. I mean, I, I would even say like in Seattle, we've had our questions about um, suspect activists and whether or not those folks actually work for the government, you know? So um, yeah, I, I think it's just better to assume it's always possible and to do what we can to protect ourselves and each other. To be safe, yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing my best and I'm trying to have conversations in the white community because I think uh, as much as th there's a whole group of white people saying, what can I do and how can I help? I think finding our, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten is find what you're good at and what you can do in your network and your skills and offer that to the community. And I think that there are a lot of people that are causing problems by not doing that. And I I. I have heard this a lot in the last few weeks, especially because of the questionable uprisings that happened at CHOP versus some of the anarchy, which is very mixed feelings as well as far as what's happening in the anarchist community. Um, and I've heard a lot of people just default to what is Nikita Oliver doing? What is she saying to do? What what uh, protest does she say to go to? You know, what do you want to tell people that don't know who to look to, don't know who to follow, but want to offer their services or whatever they have or money or services? Um, but, um, you know, that's a lot of pressure for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot of dynamic organizations and organizers doing work. Um, I, I often ask people to go back to decriminalize Seattle or King County Equity Now. Uh, King County Equity Now being um, a coalition that is fully Black-led. It is a coalition of Black-led organizations 
that are, many of them were birthed out of the grassroots and have direct relationships with, with Black community members, but especially direct relationships with uh, Black community members that experience marginalization or disenfranchisement as a result of the criminal punishment system. So um, King County Equity Now is one group I really encourage people to follow, to get to know the demands because it, it's a growing list of demands. What does equity look like in education and employment and housing, not just as it relates to the police, but also the whole criminal punishment system? Um, what does it look like to really dismantle Jim Crow apartheid as it exists in, in King County? Um, that organization, that coalition is doing a lot of dynamic work that that people could back. I mean, we're even talking about what does equity look like in the cannabis industry and, you know, developing a list of solutions around how black folks who have been systemically uh, criminalized as it relates to cannabis, how do we get some equity now in this booming industry that, to be quite frank, mostly white men are benefiting from. Um, so that's one group that I think is developing a broad range of solutions. Um, Decriminalize Seattle is really birthed out of the history of the No New Youth Jail and Block the Bunker movement. Um, and obviously is helping to spearhead a lot of the defund work at the city level, uh, but also are thinking about uh, how do we how do we decriminalize misdemeanors? We don't need Seattle Municipal Court. It's such a waste of money that we could actually be investing in public health and public safety measures that keep people from ever catching misdemeanors, ever ending up in that court. And to be quite frank, it's it's racially disparate. It's usually black and brown peoples. It's BIPOC folks. It's QDPOC folks. So doing a lot of work on what does decriminalization look like? What is dismantling the criminal punishment system and the prison industrial complex look like? And how do we actually build those community-based solutions um, that make sure people's needs are met? Like if folks had, housing is such an important issue. Um, if folks were housing stable, the ability to not be involved in the criminal punishment system, just to be distanced from it, even if things didn't change, would drastically change for a lot of people. So those are two coalitions I think are doing amazing work. Um, there's the Black Collective Voices, which is a, a group of folks that came up out of the chop. Um, and a lot of folks that I knew prior to the current uprising have chosen to be a part of that particular group. Um, and they're leading regular actions and demonstrations. There's a group of young people called Engaged. Um, and I say young because they're like 17 to 24 and they're the ones doing the Starbucks protest today. And they're very focused on like um, educating through direct action and demonstrations. And so they're doing good work. Um, and, and like so many folks that are new to movement organizing though, all of, you know, Groups are learning, you know, Decriminalize Seattle has the benefit of having no new youth jail and block the bunker behind us. So have learned a lot of things that maybe we don't want to repeat. Um, I think it's important to remember that when young people enter into organizing work and activism, they're also evolving and learning. Um, you learn a lot of this on, on the fly. And for black youth who, to be quite frank, are born into this struggle, didn't choose this struggle, probably, you know, don't want to be in the streets all the time, but what is our what is our other choice? Um, they're also growing and evolving their knowledge of how to organize and be a part of activism. So I think a lot of people um, trust my voice, and I, I take that very seriously and feel an immense responsibility to fact check on things that I share or events that I put out there. But there are other groups like the ones I just mentioned that are also doing incredible work of organizing. Um, 
on, on the many front lines. I think it's very easy to think that demonstrations are the only front lines. Um, some black femmes, I think people should follow. Uh, Sheree Lascelles, um, Christiana Obey Sumner, who does a lot of work around the intersection of disability rights and, um, and race. Uh, Kirsten Talley Harrison, who's also running, uh, she and Sheree are running for uh, state level positions. Um, Bana Abera, Ivana, I'm gonna say their last name all wrong. Um, it, I'm gonna not say it, so I don't <laughs> say it. Wrong. But there are a lot of Black Femmes around that people should be paying attention to, including the Black Femme Collective. So um, I really encourage folks to like get on Instagram, find these groups, um, know that there are other places to plug in that this is a leaderful movement. There is a reason why it's a leaderful movement. It has to be a leaderful movement. We don't want to repeat history where um, where a few of our leaders get taken out and the movement doesn't survive, right? So it's so important that we do work in coalition, that we listen to diverse voices, um, and that we amplify the demands. At the end of the day, um, it doesn't matter what protests you go to if if you're clear on the demands and you're doing the work around the demands, defund the police, invest in community-based public health and public safety strategies, and free all the protesters. I mean, that's, that's really what counts. Uh, I would also say to folks who have access to resources, donate those resources to an organization you trust and do the research. Don't, don't rely on my voice to tell you who the right group is, you know, uh, figure out who's the board of that group. Are those board members connected to the black community? Um, what kind of fruit do you see coming out of that organization? Do you actually see them leading in significant ways on change? Uh, does it seem like they're taking credit for work that they didn't do? Like, these are questions I ask when, when I decide if I'm gonna donate to an organization um, and I look into the work that they're doing. Do they have a race analysis? Is it an intersectional analysis? Are black, queer and trans people um, a part of the mission, the vision, the values in the organization? Um, everyone can ask these questions. Everyone can do that analysis and decide if that's the place they wanna put their, their time, their energy, their resources. And at the end of the day, um, COVID-19 is still real. Some people cannot leave their homes. Um, I really encourage people to be talking to your family. Uh, as, a, as a person who has white family um, and has relatives that live in Indiana, I know firsthand how important it is that I be holding them accountable to changing the culture of whiteness, to be changing their behavior, to be getting to know what it means to dismantle and undo white supremacy. Uh, and that I know it's hard work and I know it creates family strife and family trauma, but if we don't do it with our families, who's going to do it? We can't expect other people to do that work for us. I didn't know. Are you from Indiana? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah. And so that whole area, like, you know, my primary partner, Ryan is from, you know, Louisville, Kentucky. And that just like over the bridge there in Cincinnati, like I've been over there and yeah, it's a whole different world. And if we can't have those hard conversations with our family, like that's where we have to start. In my opinion, there's so I'm Italian. Italians are fucking racist. Like there are my, my older family members. I have had so many hard conversations because that's my job. And if it's uncomfortable for them, sorry about it. Like, you know, have a have another beer because we're going to continue talking. Like, that's where I am right now. But 
Um, and also, you know, I come from the hip hop community here with somebody who was a white rapper who has since retired because he wanted that voice to go to someone of color, like that space needs to go to somebody else. And, you know, I had dreadlocks and I cut that shit off and understood and did the education. And now these people that I see at protests with dreadlocks, I am done. Like, this is my decision. Like I'm having these conversations with people at protests. Let's talk about your hair. Let's talk about why it's problematic. Now let's get you a haircut. I'll pay for it. Let's, let's go do it. Like it's, it's my, like, if we know, if we have this education and understanding as white people, it's our job to go and, and give that information to another white person that might not be at this point where we are yet. And it's all, I feel like that's my only job right now is like cut white dreads off and like make sure that, I mean, I'm bringing my stylist with me. I already asked like a few of the organizers from the 4th of July event. I was like, can I have a booth that cuts white dreads? And they were like, Please let's let's organize it so my stylist is going to come with clippers. Like, yes, I mean I think it's so important to be to have white folks doing that education work with other white folks. I mean, to, for a number of reasons. Like one, sometimes white people don't want to listen to black and brown folks, you know, as as we're telling them things. But also, it is traumatic to constantly have to be explaining co-optation or why something someone is doing is racist and and to have that conversation over and over again it's just a kind of trauma that's actually hard to explain um you know they talk about how black folks have very high elevated uh amounts of cortisol in our bodies which ultimately leads to a lot of health issues heart disease diabetes and i actually you know i deeply believe a lot of that is just like because of these constant uh high stress conversations we're always having to have and the also the high stress life we live, not knowing is your young is your child gonna come home after you send them to school? Are you gonna go come home after you go to work? What encounters are you gonna have between home and work or at work with coworkers or work and back to home? Um, there's just so many things that can happen to black folks throughout our day that uh, having having those conversations <laughs> taken off our plates. Uh, is definitely a welcomed one because uh, I look forward to the day when, you know, we're not the first in heart disease and diabetes, um, you know, because a lot of that is related to just it's it's the racism in health and it is the race. It's the f- effect that racism and constantly having to organize for your survival puts on your body. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Cut off all the white people dreads. And, uh, <laughs> Please get out of get out the space of hip hop if it, it wasn't meant for you. Uh, it is very hard to watch uh, white artists do black arts and and benefit so greatly from it. And yet, I know so many very talented uh, black MCs who have not made near the same amount of capital off of an art that literally was birthed out of our struggle and need to be able to create peace in our communities. Right. So yeah. Tell them about it. It's yeah. Good I mean, and also if you're making money, if you, if, even if you retired, if you're still making money off your hip hop, you know, there's so, there were so many white rappers in the early two thousands. That's the generation we came from. How much of your royalties are you giving back to the Duwamish tribe right now? Like, are you doing that monthly? You get royalties monthly. Like let's break a piece of that off every time. Like, because you can't take it back, but you can give back now. You can put that money in and make it intentional. And I think you said something in an interview recently showing that you are accountable and that you acknowledge what has happened and 
where it has come from. And that goes back to the dreads and hip hop and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, accountability is the root of, if, of restorative justice. And if we're gonna be restorative, that acknowledgement and taking active accountability um, is so important on the interpersonal level as well as on the societal level you know, that if we're going to get to a place where we're not using a punitive system or the criminal punishment system or policing as our method of quote unquote justice, it starts with individuals learning how to be personally accountable for our actions and finding ways that that accountability actually has a reparative, a healing component to it. And in that instance, yes, if you're getting royalties and you've decided you're no longer going to do hip hop because you realize um, you know, the harm that you might have caused or maybe the gain that you got that, that you shouldn't have because of the way that whiteness often benefits, uh, please pay rent to the Duwamish and give some, give some donations to King County Equity now. Yeah, I love that. That's good advice. Those are two really good places to start too, I think. Um, well, you answered my last question already, which were the current demands, um, because I want people to know um, but I do end all my interviews with some lightning round questions that are kind of James Lipton inspired um, okay. to humanize people. Because I think people see you. I, I heard you called on the front lines the other day. Somebody called you a wartime mayor. And I actually love that. I was like, yes, she is a wartime mayor. Um, but I want people to know that, you know, you have you're human as well. And um, so my first question is just my favorite, which is what's your favorite swear word? Uh, fuck. Yeah, I think that's like 90% of the answers. Yeah, it's, it's, I usually am like, motherfucker, but I feel bad about that sometimes. <laughs> it's real though. Okay, so do you have like a book that you're reading or music, like an album or something when you're really stressed that you're like, I need to turn this off. I need to listen to this album or like read this book right now. Man, um, Janae Aiko and Kehlani. I really love the sad girl R&B. Like, um, Janae's album is like, <sighs> break up album of the century. The sound bowls in it. It's yeah, the whole album just reading how she created the album and listening to it. I'm like number one fan on Spotify probably. I think I listened to that album. I can't even count how many times I listened to it in the quarantine. It was kind of perfect timing when it came out. I was like, this is beautiful. But yeah, she's incredible. I love that answer. Okay, so I want, if you could name two or three influential people that have inspired you to be who you are today that are not, and I don't think this will be a problem, cis, straight, white men. <laughs> yeah, that's not a problem. Um, wow. Three. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, the first the first uh, revolutionary that I really got to know was Asada. Um, Asada Shakur. I read uh, her biography like at least five times. Mm. Really just uh, opened my eyes to so many things. And uh, affirm for me the kind of uh, rebel I want to be. Um, Mary Flowers, who is a, a black elder, yelder here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, she has the ability to say the hardest thing to you in the nicest way. Like 
she'll tell you you suck and somehow you're mm -hmm. like but you still love me and okay. i can feel it um so I, I i aspire one day to be able to be like mary flowers and um dr mims who is like the matriarch of uh black seattle uh i have never met she's she's definitely an elder um i think she's in her 80s I have never met someone whose mind is so liberated just in the way that she talks and thinks about the world. She was a founder of Evergreen State College, um, an, an incredible educator, but she just does her. She's like, it. the way she thinks about herself is so uncaged. Um, and I I want that for all all people, but especially all Black people. I want us to not have to think of ourselves in this cage that often happens when we are fighting white supremacy on a daily basis. Dr. Mims is a real example of what it looks like to at least be fully mentally liberated, even if you're still living in a space um, that is oppressive. Mm, she sounds magical. She is magical. And she comes in with a whole court. She is a true queen. Mm. All just amazing. I love that. Well, my last question is, if you could have lunch with your younger self, about how old would you be? What would you say to her? And what would you, the most important part of this is, what would you guys eat together? Oh my gosh. Um, I'll go with a 16 year old me. And uh, I didn't have Thai food till I moved to Seattle in 2004. Uh, there was this restaurant called Oropin over on Queen Anne. I went to Seattle Pacific University. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> and um, I'm just like, I don't know how I lived my whole life without Thai food. But uh, I grew up in a evangelical Christian uh, Midwest upbringing. And uh, I had, you know, I was 16, so I definitely had no tattoos. But I didn't cuss. I was like not having sex till I got married. Um, I definitely was not admitting to anyone I was queer. Uh, you know, so I think I would go back to her and be like, hey, guess what? All of these things are fine. You don't have to pray for forgiveness for saying fuck. Uh, <laughs> it's okay to like girls and boys or whomever else you like. Um, and, you know, Jesus is not a white man. <laughs> real, real. Yeah. 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 I was a very different person then. So weren't we all though? I love that. Well, how can people find you online? What's the best ways to find you on social media and online? Uh, Nikita Oliver uh, is my handle on both Instagram and Twitter and my Facebook, I don't even consider it my Facebook anymore. So you can follow that and I post things there. Um, but yeah, I really recommend following uh, Decriminalize Seattle and King County Equity Now. They're doing a lot of really just amazing work. And a lot of the work they're doing is work I'm reposting or whatever, we're cross posting with each other. And I think it's actually more important that people follow the coalitions uh, I mean, I'm great and all, but <laughs> the coalitions are going to last longer than Nikita will. And 
Uh, they're more sustainable because it's multiple people and multiple orgs. And I think it's really important to take the spotlight off of uh, individuals and, and put it back on the whole body of people doing the work. So follow Decriminalize Seattle and uh, King County Equity now. Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time and for joining us today. And please try to stay safe and take care of yourself. <laughs> you too. Team I, effort. I, it is. It is. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode and all the episodes. We hope you'll join and support us online in the Faces of Fortitude movement on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude, on Facebook at Faces of Fortitude Portraits, and you can find me personally on Twitter at Mariangela Abeo. If you'd like more information about the Faces movement or have an idea for a topic or person you'd like to see on the podcast, please email us at booking at facesoffortitude.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and those around you. And by that, I mean, wash your fucking hands, wear a damn mask, defund the police, basically continue fighting for the rights of black lives everywhere, especially black trans lives, and do your part to abolish all forms of systemic racism. I'll see you next time.